Listener supported. WNYC Studios. For me, Richard II is really about what kind of power structures we want. What does that mean for a society when you challenge your system of power? Shakespeare takes leaders and puts them under pressure. So the interest in this play and in any other history or tragedy is why and when leaders fail. I'm Vincent Cunningham, staff writer at The New Yorker, and this is Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. Tonight, our third episode of Richard II. This is where the whole play turns. If you know Richard II, this might be the episode that you've been waiting for. It's where we hear the famous deposition scene, where Bolingbroke claims the crown of Richard as his own. Ayanna Thompson teaches English at Arizona State University. She's been on our show all week to help us understand the play. The deposition scene is the scene in which Bolingbroke and his confederates force Richard to take his crown off and to renounce his kingship. So you say, give me the crown. There'll be a bit of narration there. Um, and he has to do this in front of them for Bolingbroke to legitimately become King Henry the uh, Fourth. And although it's meant to be a scene of kind of just legal transition of power, mm-hmm. it ends up being one of the most moving scenes about an existential sense of what one's identity is. That one of the beautiful, beautiful things about this play, man, is that Richard's clarity uh, increases exponentially the further he's away from the crown. <laughs> this is Sahim Ali. He's the director of this production of Richard II. Which is, I mean, that's how life works. Right? Right? (laughs) You don't know what you got until you don't have it anymore. That's right, yeah. And so he just like, this person emerges as the play progresses who is like so lucid, so sensitive, so thoughtful. And you're like, where was he before? Uh, (laughs) what, what, What was obscuring that? And that becomes a question. Was it willful? Was it not willful? Was that person always there? But because of his circumstances, because he was forced to lead, he just didn't have the time. I don't think... A person just emerges. I think a person's always been there, right? Like your characteristics are, they lie somewhere beneath and what's going to activate them? And so the play is this long, slow, beautiful release of Richard's humanity. Let's take it again. Um, Dre, that um, second here cousin, just a touch more of that. Which you um, just don't see in the beginning. Yeah. If you want to follow along by script, go to wnyc.org slash Shakespeare to download the play. But first, let's catch up. Last night on Richard II. I have received intelligence that Harry Bolingbroke, well furnished by the Duke of Brittany with eight tall ships, 3,000 men of war, are making hither with all due expedience and shortly mean to touch our northern shore. What would you have me do? I am a subject, and I challenge law. Attorneys are denied me, and therefore, personally, I lay my claim to my inheritance of free descent. Discharge my followers, let them hence away. From Richard's night to Bolingbroke's fair day. Tonight, we begin with a confrontation at Flint Castle between King Richard and Henry Bolingbroke. 
The scene at Flint Castle is just a remarkable bit of writing and stagecraft. That's Ayanna Thompson again. Because as Richard is on the ramparts at the highest part of the castle looking down, he sees the impressiveness and the size of Bolingbroke's um, support. And he's made to descend down to the level of Bolingbroke. Ayana, alongside Jim Shapiro from Columbia University, has been helping us understand how the characters evolve. Over the course of the play, we've seen this charismatic, savvy, adept leader, Bolingbroke, grow more and more empowered. And now Bolingbroke is approaching Richard's castle. Um, what's going on and how should the audience understand this sort of heightening in the drama? That's the question. Bolingbroke is one of the first geniuses at using his charisma, using uh, uh, disaffected and disgruntled people to turn against their leaders and to turn towards him. But we're witnessing at this point what it means to take power, not to exercise it. Bolingbroke begins this episode demanding Richard restore his inheritance. He ends it in possession of Richard's crown. And that change in status is sort of a cataclysm for Richard. This episode is really, really key to the emotional change or shift that happens in the play. Yeah. Because if the first two episodes are really establishing um, Richard's ineffectualness as a leader, then I think the third and fourth episodes allow us to see his humanity and also to feel um, grief and loss for what it is to remove someone from a position of power. Richard's descent was part of the appeal of the play for director Sahim Ali. He was just ill-equipped to deal with the corruption and intricacies and abilities that were required to be a successful ruler. There is a lot that Shakespeare doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us whether Bolingbroke wants the crown from the beginning. He doesn't tell us why Richard decides to give up the crown. We can infer, we can deduce. Jim, the guy from Columbia, he worked with the actors to help them understand their characters even better. During rehearsals, Zoom rehearsals, uh, I kept asking Miriam Hyman, who's playing Bolingbroke, so Miriam, do you want to grab the crown? Is that why you're doing this? Or are you just coming back to get your own, to get your land and monies back? And she quite brilliantly kept putting me off saying, um, I'm not sure yet. I don't know. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> Which is exactly what Bolingbroke would have said, even if he knew he was coming for the throne. Let's listen as Bolingbroke closes in on Richard's throne. This is Richard II, which the public and the actors dedicate to the Black Lives Matter movement. Thank you. 
Fearing confrontation, King Richard has taken shelter in a castle. Only a handful of noblemen remain by his side. At this moment, however, we're outside the castle walls, where Bolingbroke is arriving, having assembled a battalion. So that by this intelligence, we learn the Welshmen are dispersed, and Salisbury is gone to meet the king, who lately landed with some few private friends upon this coast. The news is very fair and good, my lord. <laughs> Richard, not far from hence, hath hid his head. It would beseem the Lord Northumberland to say King Richard. Alack the heavy day when such a sacred king should hide his head. Your grace mistakes. Only to be brief left I his title out. <laughs> the time hath been, would you have been so brief with him, he would have been so brief to shorten you your whole head's length. Mistake not, uncle, further than you should. Take not, good nephew, further than you should, lest you mistake the heavens are o'er our heads. I know it, uncle, and oppose not myself against their will. here. Welcome, Hotspur. What? Will not this castle yield? The castle royally is manned, my lord, against thy entrance. Royally? Why? It contains no king. Yes, my good lord, it doth contain a king. King Richard lies within the limits of yon lime and stone. Mm-hmm. Northumberland, go to the rude ribs of that ancient castle. Through brazen trumpet, send the breath of Parley into his ruined ears and thus deliver. Henry Bolingbroke, on both his knees, doth kiss King Richard's hand and sends allegiance and true faith of heart to his most royal person. Hither come, even at his feet, to lay my arms and power, provided that my banishment repealed and lands restored again be freely granted. If not, I'll use the advantage of my power and lay the summer's dust with showers of blood rained from the wounds of slaughtered Englishmen. Go signify as much while we here march upon the grassy carpet of this plain. My lord. Let's march without the noise of threatening drum that from this castle's tottering battlements our fair appointments may be well perused. Methinks King Richard and myself should meet with no less terror than the elements of fire and water when their thundering shock at meeting tears the cloudy cheeks of heaven. Be he the fire, I'll be the yielding water. The rage be his whilst on the earth I rang my waters. On the earth and not on him. March on, and mark King Richard how he looks. In the distance, Richard appears high up on the castle wall. See? See? King Richard doth himself appear, as doth the blushing, discontented sun from out the fiery portal of the east, when he perceives the envious clouds are bent to dim his glory and to stain the track 
of his bright passage to the Occident. Yet looks he like a king. Behold his eye, as bright as is the eagle's lightens forth, controlling majesty. Oh, alack, alack for woe, that any harm should stain so fair a show. We're on the castle wall now, overlooking the courtyard. Richard is with his cousin Omuro, as Northumberland approaches below. We are amazed, and thus long have we stood to watch the fearful bending of thy knee, because we thought ourselves thy lawful king. And if we be, how dare thy joints forget to pay their awful duty to our presence? If we be not, show us the hand of God that hath dismissed us from our stewardship. For well we know no hand of blood and bone can grip the sacred handle of our scepter unless he do profane, steal, or usurp. And though you think that all, as you have done, have torn their souls by turning them from us, and we are barren and bereft of friends, yet no, my master, God omnipotent, is mustering in his clouds on our behalf armies of pestilence, and they shall strike your children yet unborn and unbegot that lift your vassal hands against my head and threat the glory of my precious crown. Tell Bolingbroke, for yon methinks he stands, that every stride he makes upon my land is dangerous treason. He has come to open the purple testament of bleeding war, but ere the crown he looks for live in peace, ten thousand bloody crowns of mother's sons shall ill become the flower of England's face, change the complexion of her made pale peace to scarlet indignation, and bedew her pasture's grass with faithful English blood. But the king of heaven forbid our lord the king should so with civil and uncivil arms be rushed upon. Thy thrice noble cousin, Harry Bolingbroke, doth humbly kiss thy hand, and by the honorable tomb he swears that stands upon your royal grandsire's bones, and by the royalties of both your bloods, his coming hither hath no further scope than for his lineal royalties, and to beg enfranchisement immediate on his knee. Northumberland. Say thus the king returns. His noble cousin is right welcome hither, and all the number of his fair demands shall be accomplished without contradiction, with all the gracious utterance thou hast. Speak to his gentle hearing, kind commends. Northumberland heads back to Bolingbroke to deliver the good news, but almost immediately... Richard hesitates. Oh, we... No, we do debase ourselves, O Merle, do we not? To look so poorly and to speak so fair. Shall we call back Northumberland and, and send defiance to the traitor and so die? No, my good lord. Let's fight with gentle words till time lend friends and friends their helpful swords. Oh, God. Oh, God, that air this tongue of mine, 
that laid the sentence of dread banishment on yon proud man should take it off again with words of sooth. That I were as great as is my grief or lesser than my name, or that I could forget what I have been or not remember what I must be now. Oh, swell's thou proud heart. I'll give thee scope to beat, since foes have scope to beat both thee and me. Northumberland comes back from Bolingbroke. What must the king do now? Must he submit? The king shall do it. Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. Must he lose the name of king? In God's name, let it go. I'll give my jewels for a set of beads, my gorgeous palace for a hermitage, my gay apparel for an almsman's gown, my figured goblets for a dish of wood, my scepter for a palmer's walking staff, my subjects for a pair of carved saints, and my large kingdom for a little grave. A, a little, little grave, an obscure grave. Oh, Merle, thou weepst, my tender-hearted cousin. We'll make foul weather with despised tears. Our sighs and they shall lodge the summer corn and make a dearth in this revolting land. Or, or shall we play the wantons with our woes and make some pretty match with shedding tears, as thus, to drop them still upon one place till they have fretted us a pair of graves within the earth. And therein laid... There lies two kinsmen dig their graves with weeping eyes. <laughs> Would not this ill do well? <laughs> well. Well. Most mighty prince, my lord Northumberland, what says King Bolingbroke? Will his majesty give Richard leave to live till Richard die? You make a leg in Bolingbroke, says I. My lord, in the base court he doth attend to speak with you. May it please you to come down. Down, down I come like glistering Phaeton, wanting the manage of unruly jades. In the base court. Base court where kings grow base, to come at traitors' calls and do them grace. In the base court, come down. Ah, down court, down king. For night owls shriek where mounting larks should sing. show fair duty to his majesty. My gracious lord. Fair cousin. You do debase your princely knee to make the base earth proud with kissing it. Me rather had my heart might feel your love than my unpleased eye 
see your courtesy. Up, cousin, up. Your heart is up, I know, thus high, at least, although your knee be low. My gracious lord, I come but for mine own. Your own is yours, and I am yours, and all. So far be mine, my most redoubted lord, as my true service shall deserve your love. <laughs> well you deserve. They well deserve to have, they know the strongest and surest way to get. <laughs> Uncle. Uncle, give me your hands. Nay, dry your eyes. Tears show their love, but want their remedies. What you will have, I'll give, and willing, too. For do we must, what force will have us do? Set on towards London, cousin, is it so? Yea, my good lord. Then I must not say no. Queen is in her garden, waiting on news of Richard's return. What sport shall we devise here in this garden to drive away the heavy thought of care? Madam will play at balls. <laughs> Twill make me think the world is full of rubs. <laughs> Madam will dance. My legs can keep no measure in delight when my poor heart no measure keeps in grief. Therefore, no dancing, girl. Some other sport. Madam, we'll tell tales. Of sorrow or of joy? Of either, madam. Of neither, girl. For if of joy, being altogether wanting, it doth remember me the more of sorrow, or if of grief, being altogether had, it adds more sorrow to my want of joy. Hmm. Oh, madam, I'll sing. Tis well that thou hast cause, but thou shouldst please me better, wouldst thou weep. I could weep, madam, would it do you good? And I could sing, would weeping do me good? And never borrow any tear of thee. But stay, here come the gardeners. Let's step into the shadow of these trees. They'll talk of state, for every one doth so against a change. Woe is forerun with woe. Go, bind thou up, young dangling apricots, which like unruly children make their sire stoop with oppression of their prodigal weight. Give some supportance to the bending twigs, and like an executioner, cut off the heads of two fast-growing sprays that look too lofty in our commonwealth. All must be even in our government. You thus employed, I will go root away the noisome weeds, which without profit suck the soil's fertility from wholesome flowers. Why should we in the compass of a pale keep law and form and due proportion, showing as in a model our firm estate, when our seawalled garden, the whole land, is full of weeds, her fairest flowers choked up, her fruit trees all unpruned, her hedges ruined, her knots disordered, and her wholesome herbs swarming with caterpillars? Hold thy peace. He that hath suffered this disordered spring hath now himself met with fall of leaf. Huh? The weeds which his broad spreading leaves did shelter, that seemed in eating him to hold him up, are plucked up root and all by Bolingbrook. I mean green, bushy. What? Are they dead? They are. 
<sighs> and Bolingbroke has seized the wasteful king. Oh, what pity is it that he had not so trimmed and dressed his land as we this garden. We at time of year do wound the bark, the skin of our fruit trees, lest, being overproud in sap and blood, with too much riches it confound itself. Had he done so to great and growing men, they might have lived to bear and he to taste their fruits of duty. Superfluous branches we lop away that bearing boughs may live. Had he done so, himself had borne the crown which waste of idle hours have quite thrown down. What? Think you the king shall be deposed? Depressed he is already, and deposed tis doubt he will be. Oh, I am pressed to death through want of speaking. Thou old Adam's likeness Madam. set Madam. to dress this garden. How dares thy harsh, rude tongue sound this unpleasing news? What Eve, what serpent hath suggested thee to make a second fall of cursed man? Why dost thou say King Richard is deposed? Dost thou, thou little better thing than earth, divine his downfall? Say where, when, and how camest thou by this ill tidings? Speak, thou wretch! Pardon me, madam. Little joy have I to breathe this news, yet what I say is true. King Richard, he is in the mighty hold of Bolingbroke. Their fortunes both are weighed. In your lord's scale is nothing but himself and some few vanities that make him light. But in the balance of great Bolingbroke besides himself are all the English peers, and with that odds he weighs King Richard down. Post you to London, and you will find it so. I speak no more than every one doth know. And am I last that knows it? <laughs> what was I born to this? That my sad look should grace the triumph of great Bolingbroke? Gardner, for telling me these news of woe, pray God the plants thou grafts may never grow. Poor queen, so that thy state might be no worse, I would my skill were subject to thy curse. Here did she fall a tear. Here in this place I'll set a bank of rue, sour herb of grace. Ruin for Ruth here shortly shall be seen in the remembrance of a weeping queen. You're listening to Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. Richard II will be back in a moment. I'm Vincent Cunningham. You're listening to Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. We return now to Richard II. Back in court, Bolingbroke, who is not yet king, is wrangling the country's most powerful men. He intends to depose King Richard. Will Richard give up the crown, or will Bolingbroke have to seize it? 
Call forth Baggett. Now, Baggett, freely speak thy mind what thou dost know of noble Gloucester's death. Who wrought it with the king, and who performed the bloody office of his timeless end? Then set before my face the Lord O'Merle. Cousin, stand forth and look upon that man. My Lord O'Merle, I know your daring tongue scorns to unsay what once it hath delivered. In that dead time, when Gloucester's death was plotted, I heard you say, Is not my arm of length that reacheth from the restful English court as far as Calais to mine uncle's head? Amongst much other talk that very time, I heard you say that you had rather refuse the offer of a hundred thousand crowns than Bolingbroke's return to England, adding withal... How blessed this land would be in this, your cousin's death. Princes and noble lords, what answer shall I make to this base man? Shall I so much dishonor my fair stars on equal terms to give him chastisement? Either I must, or have mine honor soiled with the attainder of his slanderous lips. Ha! There is my gauge, the manual seal of death that marks thee out for hell. I say, thou liest, and will maintain that what thou hast said is false in thy heart-blood, though being all too base to stain the temper of my knightly sword. Uh, bag it, forbear, thou shalt not take it up. Excepting one, I would he were the best in all this presence that hath moved me so. If that thy valor stand on sympathy, wow, there is my gauge, O Merle, engaged to thine. By that fair sun, which shows me where thou standst, I heard thee say, and vauntingly thou spakest it, that thou wert the cause of noble Gloucester's death. If thou deniest it twenty times, thou liest, and I will turn thy falsehood to thy heart, where it was forged with my rapier's point. Well, thou darest not, coward, live to see that day. Now by my soul, I would it were this hour. Fitzwater, thou art damned to hell for this. O Merle, thou liest. His honor is as true in this appeal as thou art all unjust. And that thou art so, there I throw my gauge to prove it on thee to the extremest point of mortal breathing. Shapah! Seize it if thou darest. <laughs> Who sets me else? Huh? Huh? Oh, by heaven, I'll throw it all. I have a thousand spirits in one breast to answer twenty thousand such as you. My lord Fitzwater, I do remember well the very time, O Merlin, you did talk. Tis very true. You were in presence then, and you can witness with me. This is true. As false by heaven as heaven itself is true. Sorry, thou liest. Boy, that lie shall lie so heavy on my sword that it shall render vengeance and revenge till thou, the lie-giver, and that lie do lie in earth as quiet as thy father's skull. In proof whereof, there is my honor's pawn. Engage to the trial if thou darest. Mm, how fondly dost thou spur a forward horse. 
If I dare eat or drink or breathe or live, I dare meet Surrey in a wilderness and spit upon him whilst I say he lies and lies and lies. Bang! There is my bond of faith to tie thee to my strong correction. Besides, I heard the banished Mowbray say that thou, O Merle, didst send two of thy men to execute the noble duke at Calais. Let some honest Christian trust me with a gauge. Ah! That Mowbray lies, here do I throw down this, if he may be repealed to try his honor. These differences shall all rest under gauge till Mowbray be repealed. Repealed he shall be, and, though mine enemy, restored again to all his lands and seigneuries. When he is returned against O'Merle, we will enforce his trial. That honorable day shall ne'er be seen. Many a time have banished Mowbray fought for Jesu Christ in glorious Christian field, retired himself to Italy, and there at Venice gave his body to that pleasant country's earth. Why, Bishop? Is Mowbray dead? As surely as I live, my lord. Sweet peace conduct his sweet soul to the bosom of good old Abraham. Lord Appellants, your differences shall all rest under gauge till we assign you to your days of trial. Henry Bolingbroke, I come to thee from plume-plucked Richard, who with willing soul adopts the heir, and his high scepter yields to the possession of thy royal hand. Ascend his throne, descending now from him, and long live Henry, fourth of that name. In God's name, I'll ascend the regal throne. Mary God forbid! Worst in this royal presence may I speak. Your best beseeming me to speak the truth. Were God that any in this noble presence were enough noble to be upright judge of noble Richard, then true noblesse would learn him forbearance from so foul a wrong. What subject can give sentence on his king? And who sits here that is not Richard's subject? Thieves are not judged, but they are by to hear, although apparent guilt be seen in them. And shall the figure of God's majesty, his captain, steward, deputy-elect, anointed, crowned, planted many years, be judged by subject and inferior breath, and he himself not present, oh, forfeited God! that in a Christian climate, souls refined, should show so heinous, black, obscene a deed. I speak to subjects, and the subject speaks, stirred up by God, thus boldly, for his king. Henry Bolingbroke here, whom you call king, is a foul, traitor to his king. And if you crown him, let me prophesy the blood of English shall manure the ground 
and future ages shall groan for this here foul act. Disorder, horror, fear, and mutiny shall here inhabit, and this land shall be called the field of Golgotha and dead men's skulls. Oh, if you raise this house against this house, it will the woefulest division prove that ever fell upon this cursed earth. Prevent it, resist it, let it not be so. Lest child, child's children cry against you. Woe. Well have you argued, sir. And for your pains of capital treason, we arrest you here. My lord of Westminster, be at your charge to keep him safely till his day of trial. May it please you, lords, to grant the common suit. Fetch hither, Richard, that in the common view he may surrender, so we shall proceed without suspicion. I will be his conduct. Lords, you that here are under our arrest, procure your sureties for your days of answer. Little are we beholding to your love, and little looked for at your helping hands. Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my knee, give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission. Yet well I remember the favors of these men. Were they not mine? Did they not sometime cry all hail to me? So Judas did to Christ. But he in twelve found truth in all but one. I in twelve thousand, none. God save the king. Will no man say amen? Am I both priest and clerk? Well then, amen. God save the king, although I be not he. And yet, amen, if heaven do think him me. To do what service am I sent for hither? To do that office of thine own goodwill, which tired majesty did make thee offer. The resignation of thy state and crown to Henry Bolingbroke. Give me the crown. Richard takes the crown. He holds it out. Here, cousin. Seize the crown. Here, cousin. Bolingbroke seizes it, but Richard doesn't let go. Ah, on this side my hand and on that side thine. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down unseen and full of water, that bucket down and full of tears am I. Drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. I thought you had been willing to resign. My crown I am, but still my griefs are mine. You may my glories and my state depose, but not my griefs. Still am I king of those. 
part of your cares you give me with your crown. Your cares set up do not pluck my cares down. My care is loss of care, by old care done. Your care is gain of care, by new care won. The cares I give, I have, though given away. They tend the crown, yet still with me they stay. Are you contented to resign the crown? I... No. No, I... For I must nothing be. Therefore, no, no, for I resign to thee. Now mark me how I will undo myself. I give this heavy weight from off my head and this unwieldy scepter from my hand, the pride of kingly sway from out my heart. With mine own tears, I wash away my balm. With mine own hands, I give away my crown. With mine own tongue, deny my sacred state. With mine own breath, release all duteous oaths. All pomp and majesty I do forswear. My manners, rents, revenues I forego. My acts, decrees, and statutes I deny. God pardon all oaths that are broke to me. God keep all vows unbroke are made to thee. Make me that nothing have with nothing grieved, and thou with all pleased that hast all achieved. Long mayst thou live in Richard's seat to sit, and soon lie Richard in an earthly pit. God save King Henry, unking Richard says, and send him many years of sunshine days. What more remains? No more. But that you read these accusations and these grievous crimes committed by your person and your followers against the state and profit of this land, that by confessing them, the souls of men may deem that you are worthily deposed. <laughs> Must I do so? Must I ravel out my weaved-up follies, gentle Northumberland? If thy offenses were upon record, would it not shame thee in so fair a troop to read a lecture of them? If thou, if thou wouldst, there shouldst thou find one heinous article containing the deposing of a king and cracking the strong warrant of an oath marked with a blot, damned in the book of heaven, nay, all of you that stand and look upon me, what's that my wretchedness doth bait myself, though some of you with Pilate wash your hands, showing an outward pity, yet you, Pilots, have here delivered me to my sour cross, and water cannot wash away your sin. My lord, dispatch, read o'er these articles. Mine eyes are full of tears, I cannot see. And yet, and yet salt water blinds them not so much, but they can see a sort of traitors here. Nay, nay, if I turn mine eyes upon myself, I find myself to be a traitor with the rest. If I have given here my soul's consent to undeck the pompous body of a king, may glory base and sovereignty a slave, proud majesty a subject, state a, a, a peasant. My lord! No lord of thine! Thou art insulting man, nor no man's lord. I have no name, no title. 
No, not that name was given me at the font, but tis usurped. Oh, alack the heavy day that I have worn so many winters out and know not now what name to call myself. Oh, that I were a mockery king of snow standing before the sun of Bolingbroke to melt myself away in water drops. Good king, great king, and yet not greatly good. And if my word be sterling yet in England, let it command a mirror hither straight, that it may show me what a face I have since it is bankrupt of his majesty. Go, some of you, and fetch a looking glass. Read o'er this paper while the glass doth come. Fiend, thou torments me ere I come to hell. Urge it no more, my lord Northumberland. The commons will not then be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. I'll read enough when I do see the very book indeed where all my sins are writ, and that's myself. Give me that glass, and therein will I read. Huh. No deeper wrinkles yet. Hath sorrow struck so many blows upon this face of mine and made no deeper wounds? Ah, oh, flattering glass, like to my followers in prosperity, thou dost beguile me. Was this face the face that every day under his household roof did keep ten thousand men? Was this the face that, like the sun, did make beholders wink? Is this the face which faced so many follies that was at last outfaced by Bolingbroke? A brittle glory shineth in this face, as brittle as the glory is the face. For there it is, cracked in an hundred shivers. Mark. Silent king, the moral of this sport, how soon my sorrow hath destroyed my face. The shadow of your sorrow hath destroyed the shadow of your face. Ooh, say that again. The, the shadow. shadow of my sorrow. Huh, let's see. It is very true. My grief lies all within, and these external manners of laments are merely shadows to the unseen grief that swells with silence in the tortured soul. There lies the substance, and I thank thee, king, for thy great bounty that not only gives to me cause to wail, but teaches me the way how to lament the cause. I'll beg one boon, and then be gone and trouble you no more. Shall I obtain it? Name it, fair cousin. Fair cousin. I am greater than a king. For when I was a king, my flatterers were then but subjects. Being now a subject, I have a king here to my flatterer. Being so great, I have no need to beg. Yet ask. And shall I have? You shall. Then give me leave to go. Whither? Whither you will. So I were from your sights. Go. Some of you, convey him to the tower. <laughs> oh, good. Mm. Convey. <laughs> Conveyors are you all that rise thus nimbly by a true king's fall. On Wednesday next, we solemnly set down our coronation. 
Lords, prepare yourselves. A woeful pageant have we here beheld. You holy clergymen, is there no plot to rid the realm of this pernicious blot? My lord, I see your brow is full of discontent, your heart of sorrow and your eyes of tears. Come home with me to supper. I'll lay a plot shall show us all a merry day. That was our third episode of Richard II. The scene you just heard, where Richard loses his crown and hands over power to Bolingbroke, is perhaps the most famous moment in this play, and it's one that continues to resonate with audiences throughout history. The deposition scene breaks my heart every time. Professor Ayanna Thompson. Because it is the moment when you see a fundamental unraveling of a person's sense of identity, and I think I think we often attribute that to that sense of like kind of personal existential crisis to a play like Hamlet. But I actually think it's more effective in Richard II because his entire sense of himself unravels. Great. And if we could go all through to now mark me how we'll undo myself. At the heart of that scene, Jim Shapiro, is a moment where Richard holding onto the crown, bowling broke holding onto the crown. Richard surrenders it. And he's left saying, one of the strangest lines in Shakespeare, which is, I know no I, which when written out looks like I as in yes, yes, no, no, yes. I know no I. Yes, no, no, yes. But it also sounds like I know no one like myself, or I don't know myself anymore. So, yes, no, no, me. Is that what you mean? I, yeah, I know no me, no I. I got it. So the whole section being, I don't know my, I know no I. Got it. Okay. Yes. There are about 20 permutations to that speech, and uh, Andre Holland captures about 19 of them as by my count, and all the nuance and ambiguity at that moment. Is this a willing surrendering of a crown? Is this the theft of a crown? The thing about the deposition scene where Richard like actually gives up the crown, hands it over, that scene was so radioactive in Shakespeare's time that they couldn't publish it. That's director Sahim Ali. It's about a leader who has to grapple with the fact that he is not able to hold on to power. And it's a power that has been assumed because... This is a society that believes in the divine right of kings. So he believes to have been preordained by God. And that, you know, there's a line where he says, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the bomb off from an anointed king. Mm -hmm. Um, So he says that in act two of the play. And then in act four of the play, gives up that very crown that he said could not be washed off from him. So 
it, there's, it sets up a real kind of situation where this is an absolute and the absolute becomes... Uh, um, contingent, maybe. Contingent, yes. Becomes contingent on the will of the people. And isn't that so relatable? I mean, it, you know, um, we, we spent a lot of the last, I don't know, decade saying, oh, but that can't happen. Right. Oh, but that would never happen. Right. Here in America and around the world. And maybe the history of the past decade is, oh, but it can. Right? Absolutely. Now, when Shakespeare wrote this play in 1595, actors were still allowed to put that scene on. But the text, the actual written record of the play, was censored. You could not find these words in print. It was sacrilegious to even suggest that a king could give up his crown. It's one of the greatest scenes that Shakespeare wrote. And it's also one of the most politically toxic and dangerous, really. And in Shakespeare's own day, Richard II was a runaway bestseller, went through three editions in 1597, 98, uh, uh, really unusual for any Shakespeare text. But in those early quartos, 180 lines or so of this deposition scene were cut. You simply couldn't print something as politically dangerous as this scene. At the time, the play had this powerful message about revolution and challenging the status quo. In 1601, just six years after Richard II was written, a group of noblemen who were planning to overthrow Queen Elizabeth even paid Shakespeare to revive it the night of their coup. On the eve of that coup in February 1601, they went to Shakespeare's company and they said, we're going to pay you, put on Richard II, which is a play about <laughs> Toplin and Old King. And uh, they kind of knew that Elizabeth identified with Richard and wasn't happy about that. And the coup failed. All the leaders were executed. And um, Shakespeare's company was called in to explain themselves. And they said, oh, this, oh we just did an old play. It was an old play. <laughs> uh, but the point is, these plays only exist in the moment. And they existed in the moment in 1601 in a very different context than when the play was written. And when a group of actors get together and they say, we want this to be a Black Lives Matter production in 2020, that's no different than what happened in February 1601. Mm. Same thing. I think this is why the play's quite powerful right now for our moment in 2020 when many, many people are calling for change and radical change. You know, as performances of a text move, not only historically, but as you say, through place and encounters different national identities. What is the history of that with productions fitting kind of those new interpretive realities onto these old texts? How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think of the texts as things that um, even if every single word remains the same, the meanings of those words change not only because of your specific moment and circumstance, but because of the 400 intervening years of circumstances. So, mm -hmm. you know, your Richard II in 2020 is not going to be exactly the same as a Richard II in apartheid South Africa in 1980. Mm -hmm. And something will have changed the, you know, the play doesn't change, but our understanding of it does based on these kind of accruals of history. And Richard II is interesting because it's not one that is very popular. 
It's not a Henry V that we get lots and lots of reiterations of. But the moments when Richard II pops up, I think are moments when um, cultures and societies are thinking about what is essential power? Do we believe in that? What makes essential power and what happens if we violate that? Tomorrow night on Richard II. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. That speech has really moved me and sometimes just walking down the street will just say it you know to myself and every time I do I hear something a little bit different to me it feels like in that speech it's a man who's learning how to become a full human being this is free Shakespeare on the radio from WNYC in collaboration with the public theater this production of Richard II was directed by Sahim Ali You can find a full list of credits, plus the script and a podcast version of this series at WNYC.org slash Shakespeare. I'm Vincent Cunningham. Thank you for listening.